Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Fantasy and Adventure, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking with Matthew Binder about his new book, The Absolved. This is your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the historical Fantasy Falcon series. Before I welcome Matthew Binder on the show, let me share a bit about the book. Henry, our narrator, is a middle-aged doctor, one of the few employed people left in the U.S., though the reader suspects his job might be in danger. The hospital administrator, Serena, keeps reducing staff. A large sector of the population, the absolved, are free from doing any work and receive a guaranteed minimum income. Their days are spent watching sports on TV or, like Henry's wife, Rachel staying productive with charity work. Another contingent of people can't register for the guaranteed income. They're known as the feudal. Political upheaval results as another election draws near. The liberal president who promised jobs has been unable to deliver, and a demagogue throws his hat into the ring for the highest office. However, Henry remains an ironic observer of society he is too preoccupied by his affair with a failed medical student, his demanding wife, and his shots of whiskey at a dive bar to engage. That is, until he sacrifices his own career for his mistress, and his life begins to unravel. A little bit about Matthew. He is the author of the novels High in the Streets and The Absolved, he is also a primary member of the recording project Bang Bang Jetaway. His website is www.matthewbinder.net. His name is spelled M-A-T-T-H-E-W-B-I-N-D-E-R.net. He's also on Twitter as at mbinder711. Thanks for joining me today. I've got Matthew Binder from New York City on the show talking about his book, The Absolved. Hi, how are you? I'm <laughs> good, thanks. And how are you this morning? I'm doing uh, very well. Uh, thank you so much for uh, having me on the show. Great. Well, let's jump into the questions about your book. Uh, yeah, I would say it's kind of a genre blend. You know, perhaps it might be filed under science fiction in a bookstore, but I don't know. It seems like it has social satire elements, too. How would you categorize your book, Matthew? Yeah, uh, I guess while I was uh, in the, while I was writing the book, while I was writing the himself, I was never, like, actively thinking about it as uh, a science fiction book, Um that never really occurred to me. I mean, it's a dystopian future novel. It takes place in the near future, about 20 years uh, from when I wrote it. Um, 
and I, you know, I, like you said, I, I totally thought of it as a social satire and it was like only in the lead up to the book's publication did it sort of get slapped with this, uh, science fiction label. Um, and that's always been sort of like, uh, a little bit of a fear of mine that the, the, the label is, you know, the science fiction label is misleading and that anyone who picks up the book, uh, because they thought it was a science fiction book that they would be, uh, sort of disappointed, uh, mm-hmm. because I don't know, there's, it's, there's no time travel or, um, trips to space or uh aliens or anything like that <laughs> and I, I don't know I, you know i i don't know what people expect when, when they see the, the label science fiction but yeah to answer your question I, I thought of it more as a as a social satire i actually think it is too and as for science fiction there are so many subcategories now so for our listeners this is not a space opera it is not a time travel book and it is not a military science fiction book, which is going to be really heavy on descriptions of advanced weaponry. What it's about is how mankind will or will not adjust to the fact that AIs do our jobs much more efficiently than we ever did. Yeah. So many books in the fantasy and science fiction category, and this is the Fantasy Channel, so that's why I'm bringing it up. They deal with themes such as individuation, the conquest of evil, etc. And there were parts of your novel that engaged with topics more familiar to readers of literary writers like Philip Roth. Now, I haven't read Philip Roth, but uh, just Henry, our narrator, he seems to venerate his wife. And yet he can't stop having affairs. Uh, And in that sense, it reminded me kind of of the travails of a middle-aged man. I found it interesting that his current mistress echoed the way his wife, Rachel, used to be. And I wondered why it was that marriage transformed Rachel from a mysterious waif to a dominating, cold Busybody, or is she maybe not a cold, dominating busybody? Yeah, um, let's see. There's a lot to that. Um, you know, Henry and his wife have been together a long time. Uh, you know, and, and my sort of limited life experience, I, I, I sort of think that it's generally some sort of passion that what is what brings two people together at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but like long-term love isn't necessarily, uh, about passion, passion sort of fades and long-term relationships are more about partnership and shared goals. And and in the book, I think Henry refers to it as duty, uh, this this partnership, this, this marriage. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, people are still, uh, uh, animals and sexual sexual passion is still a vital part of being alive and i think you know for henry uh it's probably unrealistic that uh his wife of a lot of a lot of years is uh you know able to be all things to him right the person he raises children with the person he pays his taxes with the person he takes care of when they're sick. And, you know, on top of that, the person is also supposed to be the person he wants to have sex with the most. I, I, you know, it seems unlikely for a character like, like Henry. Um, 
And so, there's, yeah, there's a lot of conflict there. Like, he loves his wife, uh, but, you know, he he sort of sees in Taylor maybe, that the, that's his mistress, the you know, something that attracted to him, to his wife when he was younger that she, you know, no longer possesses. Uh, so, you know, he's attracted to this sort of younger version of his, of, of his wife. Yeah, Rachel doesn't seem to be too excited about Henry either. <laughs> no, no uh, I, I would say that she um, tolerates him at best. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, a related question to Henry's affair. I also struggled with Henry's character. Uh, his observations are certainly funny, and he's an interesting way to explore the future. And he's got good traits. He's very intelligent. He does demonstrate caring. For instance, in the first third of the book, he helps an unemployed truck driver with his dog. He tries to intervene for an older patient whose family insists on chemotherapy. On the other hand, he seems at the mercy of people who aren't sympathetic, specifically women, such as his wife, Rachel, and his friend, Serena. Does he admire Rachel and Serena? And if so, why does he admire them? Uh, yeah, I, I think sort of a lot of people, you know, the, 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 the book's detractors certainly have complained that uh, some of the characters are, uh, too unlikable and that Henry behaves, you know, specifically the narrator behaves badly. I mean, I guess I, I see him as, mm, you know, like maybe a bit, like he's definitely like a little bit weak and, and craven, but. Uh, ultimately, I, I don't think he's malicious. I think he wants to do well in the world. He's just uh, falls. He's you know he sort of thinks of uh, a, he falls victim to temptation quite frequently. Um, and I, I, I sort of see this a lot in contemporary literature. And I don't know if it's specific to you know the, the books today or the the reading audience today, or it's just that I'm writing books today and um, so I'm more aware of it but there's like this uh appetite for these stories of like real like human triumph and and, and moral uplift and mm-hmm. um it kind of seems to me that like like adhering to like um these like prescriptive social norms about how people are supposed to act and how we uh want them to act is more important than like realistic portrayals of how people actually behave uh in the real world and um this actually recently like this uh, a reviewer who wrote a review of the book uh pointed out something that I thought was really interesting they 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 point they they said you know uh most contemporary dystopian future stories are basically told from the point of view of like the um, like the hyper oppressed victim right and that that allows readers to sort of be on this moral high ground as they go through the story and feel like they are like sort of unstained by any sort of compromise, but um, the absolved is told from the point of view of a sort of a, a hyper ethically challenged uh, card carrying member of the elite who's you know sort of desperately clinging to any sort of semblance of uh, power that he has in his life, and um, it makes a lot of readers sort of deeply <laughs> uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, I think that's one reason it strays into literary fiction territory because it's yeah. not a 
it's not a heroic story. In fact, it's more like a Dr. Strangelove story, and you have to be the kind of reader who enjoys absurd twists, and the twists in the novel would not work with the heroically constructed character. It definitely works with Henry's character, where even though you know it's um, an absurd twist, it makes sense in the context of who he is and his surrounding. And it's it's supposed to be absurd to highlight the possible insanity of where we could be going. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what I said, but I'm glad you think so. But but I'm glad I'm glad it's been recorded now, so I can uh, so I can use uh, quote your, that to your, your, your words. And, yeah, exactly, exactly. And he likes he really looks up to Serena, and I think perhaps he admires her ruthless qualities. Is that it? I think. You know, in a in the book, most of most of society is, you know, they've been displaced by AI and automation, and they're sort of like uh, they're called the absolved in the book because they've been absolved of the burden of work, and they're sort of seen they're sort of basically like a useless class of people. Like they have no, they they, they don't their lives don't necessarily have that much purpose. They're sort of rootless. But Serena is sort of like the the paragon of like uh, being successful in this, you know, sort of uh, in this world where most people are unable to compete. Um, she's been incredibly successful and she does exactly what she wants to do. And she doesn't, and she doesn't apologize for, for her success. And, um, you know, true. she has mm-hmm. insatiable appetites for, for, you know, for, for, for a lot of things like uh, power and, and money and, 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 and even sex. And, um, you know, he, he admires the fact that, that she has been so successful in a world where not so many people are successful. She's kind of like Henry's id without a super ego. That's right. Just a series of drives. Well, I mentioned a chemotherapy in the previous question and uh, the description of Henry's patient whose family practically forces him to get chemotherapy. It reminded me of my experiences in the field as a, as a professional, not as a patient, luckily. Uh, I do know that chemotherapy, in some cases of incurable cancer, is referred to in professional circles as salvage therapy, which kind of tells you right there, I think it doesn't sound very good. And I wondered what your experience with end-of-life issues was and what you would like the reader to reflect on. Yeah. Um, so my my father, he's a, an oncologist, uh-huh. and my brother, my brother is also an oncologist, and sort of the, the impetus behind this book came from a conversation I had with my brother uh at one point, he said we were talking about AI and automation displacing people from the workforce, and he said something along the lines of, uh, "You know, in the future, people will just have to work harder to cultivate a skill set that'll make them indispensable in the economy the way that I have, 
Um, and I pointed out to him, like, well, yeah, I think AI will probably be making better medical decisions than you in 20 years. And so that was sort of the impetus behind the book. But in terms of how I think about about dying and sort of end of life care, you know, I, 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 I think I wrote in the book, uh, you know, that technology isn't necessarily like slowing the aging process. It's, it's, it's slowing the dying process. Mm-hmm. And, um, I've seen, you know, firsthand from family and, uh, you know, I, I think it, there is a loss that living too long can be like a loss in the sense that like, I don't think that I would like to live too long after I've been robbed of, you know, my abilities to be creative or to contribute to society or work. And also I think about legacy a lot, you know, like my, 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 and I talk about this a little bit in the book or I write about this in the book, like for instance, my grandparents, they're all, they've all passed away now, for instance, but you know, two of them went very quickly sort of while they're at the, peak of their powers i mean they were uh you know they weren't sickly um Mm -hmm. and then two of them had very like prolonged illnesses and my memories of them like the ones my memories of my my family members who died quickly are of them you know sort of still at the peak of their powers and being competent and smart and and funny and, and and great but like my memories of my family members who suffered from very like prolonged illnesses, my, all my memories, any good memories of them have sort of been displaced by memories of, you know, them just being sort of dependent and sickly. And it's very diminishing um, to have a chronic yeah. illness that you'll eventually die from. And, and some countries actually have end of life laws in place, like the country that I live in, but I know another places like the U.S., it's a very hotly contested issue. Yeah, and I also think, you know, and it's, it's probably not PC to say so, but, like, it's also, it's you know, there's an economic part of it, too, mm-hmm. right? Like, as, like, we spend so much money on uh, care, like this, you know, we should be treating, like, doing a lot of, like, palliative care, like you were saying, uh, you know, making people feel comfortable uh, as they're dying, but, like, you know, spending tens of thousands of dollars to do dialysis on a patient who's in their mid nineties, just like, just doesn't make a whole lot of economic sense. Um, and we just spend so much money on end of life care. Right. It doesn't because, um, even if we're looking at it from a liberal perspective, a people center perspective, rather than thinking, well, that money should stay with the Koch brothers, excuse me. Um, even if we're looking at it from a people-centered perspective and a compassionate perspective, we could be thinking that money could be used for school lunches for kids who are getting inadequate nutrition or for a training program for at-risk city youth or something to maybe improve the lives of those who still have their life ahead of them. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, I guess another component of it, um, I'm, I have a, my, my father's friend who's uh, an oncologist. He's from India. He's, uh, he's, he's older. He's 80 years old or so, but he's very healthy. Um, 
but we had this conversation once and he wrote a, I think he wrote a, he's wrote a series of articles about it and maybe even a book, but like it's part of the difference between like Western civilization and, and, and Eastern culture is in the West. It's so individualistic um, in that. So people like sort of cling to life mm-hmm. at all costs because, you know, the individual is all that we have, all that anyone has where in, in Eastern culture, where he's from in India, like, People are more comfortable with the the process of dying because it's not just about the individual. It's more of you know a collective, and it's more about the family. And it's like when one person passes, like not all is lost. Like the family still lives, and uh, you know it's it's not so individualistic. And I think that has a lot to do with the way we treat death uh, in the West. Well, uh, let's get back to the absolved, right? Because. Uh... We were talking about Henry and how he admires Serena because she's still working. But the absolved have no job stress. They have a guaranteed minimum income. Gee, that sounds wonderful. What could go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) What could go wrong there? Uh, Yeah, no, I mean, a big part of the book is about what happens when there's not work for people to do, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's all the... San Francisco futurist type folks who think that, you know, once people are absolved of the burden of work, that they'll be, you know, freed up to pursue uh, more noble ambitions than just like, you know, drudgery work. Uh, you know, they'll be they'll be able to pursue things like art and music and and poetry and gardening and whatever. And you know, definitely some people will, but I think for the most part without some work to do um, and some, some I, and I think work certainly gives people purpose and um, without some work to do, uh, you know, a lot of, most people will probably fall victim to boredom and vice. Uh, um, and I think that is definitely uh, <laughs> reflected in, in, in the book. Yeah. I love uh, the idea, you know, people tell themselves, well, I, I really, I, I think I'd love to do this, and people have an idea of some kind of pursuit that they think would be vastly entertaining, and after a couple of weeks of doing it, it's like, yeah, I, I don't really care about that, do I? And You know, I don't want to, like Henry with his chair, Henry has some time off from work, I don't want to give away all the plot twists, but he finds himself with some idle time, and he decides to make a chair, and it's really much harder and much less fun than he thought. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we see it today, right? Like um, mm-hmm. most people, whenever they, you know, a lot or a lot of people, and I'm not going to say most people, but a lot of people, you know, when they have free time, they just sit on the couch and, and, and binge watch episode after episode of Netflix. It's a totally, or, you know, it's a totally passive activity, um, which and, and and yeah, and so I, I just I see that is where you know things could potentially go wrong when uh, when there's not work for people to do. Yeah, because your free time is no longer valuable; it's just there sure. all the time. So, in the background of Henry's life, while he's sneaking away with his mistress and visiting the dive bar, politics take a strange turn. A liberal and dynamic president has a challenger Henry and his friends assume will never win. He's an anti-intellectual with an 
anti-progressive ideas. He does win, though. And Henry gets caught up in a surreal sequence of events. So I'm curious, did you finish your book before or after the U.S. presidential election of 2016? So I actually, um, I wrote this book during, uh, in, in 2016, during the election year and while all this, you know, while the campaigning was going on and I was living in, I was actually living in Hungary as mm-hmm. when I wrote the book, I had been living in Albuquerque working for a company and then I just decided to pack it up and, and move to Budapest. <laughs> and so I did. And Budapest has like, you know, a very, uh, in, in power there and he's been in power for a, a very long time, uh, a, you know, a right wing, strong, authoritarian, strong man, um, sort of demagogue, uh, named Victor Orban. He's like a very, very competent version of what Trump, uh, mm-hmm. wants to be. Um, and so he base he really was able to capitalize on, uh, you know, this populist sentiment and things in Hungary are very different. Like they, you know, they have a very long history of invasion, occupation, invasion, occupation, invasion, occupation. So people there are, are a little bit more right, I think, to be wary of, um, you know, mass migration and, and people coming to their, you know, you know, changes in their, their country's demographic. But it was interesting watching the, the, the election in uh, America from that vantage point. Uh, and, you know, everyone in Hungary was watching it going, you know, all my friends, most of my friends there, you know, very liberal uh, in the city. They're, you know, successful artist type people. And they're thinking, you know, this kind of stuff happens, you know, Hungary is susceptible to like a right wing authoritarian strong man, but like, there's no way this could happen in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was writing it while watching this, you know, horror show sort of unfold in America. And um, I, I wrote probably 90% of the book bef- uh, leading up to uh, the, the, Trump's election, uh, Trump winning the election, and then uh, the ending I wrote after. Uh, so, um, but yeah, I was very, very influenced by the 26 election. And in the book, there's it's the 2036 election. It very much mirrors uh, what happens in 2016. And I tried to, in some ways, you know, I guess, you know, most I'd say most of my friends and most of the people I hang out with have nothing but sort of contempt uh, for for the populists, you know, whether it's, you know, Trump voters or, or Brexiteers or Orban supporters. supporters mm-hmm. And, and I, I can definitely understand that. But, you know, I find myself a lot sympathizing, um, you know, with the populists, with the populist sentiment, you know, the, the world, I think, is changing faster than people can evolve and um, changes uh, that are occurring in the world, whether it's technology or, or globalism, you know, there, there are an immense number of casualties, uh, because of all this rapid change. And, um, you know, that, and it can lead to a lot of like resentment and that, that can be a sort of a powerful motivator. Um, but I also try and show in the book that, you know, any sort of revolution, uh, is probably almost most likely to usher in something that's like actually far worse for the people who uh, most likely uh, need help. And, uh, but I, I tried to sh- at least show uh, 
of populist in, 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 in a sense. Uh, in a, I, I tried to show them in somewhat of a, 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 a be sensitive to, to, to what their cause is. Yeah, yeah the factory worker and the uh, dog and the bartender. I think Lydia, the bartender, is portrayed sympathetically. The, she's replaced by machine now. Mixes drinks. Sympathetically. That's the word I was looking for, mm-hmm. but I couldn't find it. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the absolved computers not only perform our work, but they also create most of the commercially available music and, like I said, even make better bartenders. And yet the new president, who drags America back not only decades but even centuries, is somewhere between a complete moron and a manipulative demagogue. So he doesn't seem to have a better answer. And so I'm just going to put this to you. If you were president, Matthew, what would you suggest for such a situation? Because I do think it's coming. Yeah, no, I do too. I mean, I I think, I don't think there's any stopping Mm -hmm. uh, technological progress, (laughs) uh, no matter what, um, you know, someone like Trump or the fictional president in my book think, I don't think you can stop progress. Um, With the book, I I definitely wasn't trying to uh, purport that I have any answers. My my only goal, I think, was to sort of raise interesting questions. Um, What would I do if I were president? I mean, that's like my absolute nightmare (laughs) (laughs) Uh, to have to be be responsible for the masses, you know, like, um, I was thinking about this yesterday. Like I work for this, uh, sort of big fancy VC funded startup in New York city. And I, there's, you know, the, the company is, uh, there's a lot of pressure on the CEO to, to basically, uh, to, to just feed this huge machine to keep mm-hmm. it going and keep mm-hmm. growing and failing. And I marvel at why anyone would want to be responsible for such like a large enterprise and be responsible for people's lives and people's money. And, um, so, you know, thinking about being the president, like that, that sounds like the worst thing ever <laughs> to me. And so, um, I, I, I think it's probably safer that I, I, I sit on the sidelines and uh, write satire. <laughs> well, all I can hope is, you know, I think about this too, that maybe there'll be off-world possibilities opening up and that people who really feel a need to be challenged and occupied and aren't happy being absolved will get a chance to live in a, who knows, maybe another world that requires a lot of challenging skills that can't be performed by machine. I don't know. We can hope that challenges will continue to remain for people who need them, who need them to do their best. So uh, you're an artist. You include musician among your passions. Uh, how do, here's just one last question. How do you feel about analytics that crunch data? I mean, they do in they do in literature as well. And these analytics, for instance, demonstrate a popular preference to a certain arrangement of musical notes. You think this is helpful to creatives? Um, maybe for some uh, creatives, uh, I'm. 
kind of a Luddite myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so um, I'm pretty uh, incompetent and unsavvy with, uh, with, 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 with any sort of data. Um, and everything I do creatively is, is uh, sort of, um, I don't know, I, like I think of it, uh, it, it's like basically like alchemy, I think. <laughs> like, uh, uh, I don't really ever have like a plan. Uh, like as I was going through this book, I didn't have the story mapped out or outlined as sort of just going day by day blindly. Uh, but yeah, I think definitely there are people who, um, know how to use this, this data to, to achieve certain ends. And they're probably the people who know how to use this data to achieve those ends, uh, in the modern world are probably going to be the most successful. Um, Mm -hmm. at least the most uh, profit will be made. Most profitable. Mm -hmm. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, when I look at the music, that's, you know, the most popular music today, uh, it's just it's 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 actually pretty impressive from like a composition structure like what these producers are able to do uh but it's very formulaic and um and i guess maybe all music at some point popular music even you know mm-hmm. rock and roll and whatever is formulaic but at, at least it felt like i don't know at least it was being performed by humans where so much of the, the music today is uh, I call it like laptop pop. It's just, you know, producers, uh, making music on the computer. Uh, they're not playing actual instruments. Um, like actual instruments actually sound offensive to young people now. They, it sounds, uh, it's not like polished enough. It's not, it's mm-hmm. not, uh, clean enough. It's not sterile enough. And like their sensibilities are almost offended by hearing like actual guitars and actual drums. They'd oh, much rather, the they, they're the tuned. Uh-huh. Yeah, they 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 need everything to be like uh, really sterilized, and that's what this like computer music, uh, like all these pop stars today, you know, every you know even their voice is run through uh, uh, you know processors in order to get out any um, any hint of like you know imperfection, and you know for past generations it's often that those little imperfections is what we gravitate towards and um and i think that you know these changes in the way people consume music and art and uh it's very much affected by this technology well that's true things are getting very slick i read for instance that in china i believe it was china or at least in asia that posting a picture of yourself that isn't worked through with some kind of photoshop like tools is just considered terribly gosh you yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. work through your image until it meets conventionally accepted norms and and leave yeah. and you put it out in the world. So I guess everybody is going to, to me, uh, perhaps some of the issue is conformity. Uh, if everything conforms to a norm, even if it's a norm that we hold to be aesthetically pleasing, it does seem yeah. like it will be somewhat of a dull world to me yeah yeah and it's it's not just in asia like the the young people now yeah any po- picture they post on instagram um they use yeah what you're saying like this like i think the app's called like facetune or hmm. um and they you know can tweak anything in their face they can make themselves thinner like uh i was sitting uh with this with this girl at work who's maybe 24 i don't know and she was she went to miami 
to the to the beach uh, for the weekend before, and she was, you know, basically doing like post production on her photos to post <laughs> on Instagram, uh-huh. and she had tweaked her foot to to make it look thinner because she thought because she was like sitting on a lounge chair in the picture and her feet were up and she tweaked she was tweaking her feet to make her feet look thinner so her feet didn't look fat in the picture well you see how the absolved will use their time (laughs) yeah exactly but i this was the first i'd ever this was like i don't know like a year ago when this happened and that was the first time i had heard of this and um you know since then i've asked around about this and everyone says yes of course absolutely like Nobody posts pictures unless you know they're 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 tweaked to make them. Oh wow! Well, I live in a small town in Switzerland, so people haven't moved yeah. past the Facebook stage yet. I mean, yeah. there's, there's no other basically social media that's being used a lot in this town. Yeah. Well, it's been really interesting chatting with you. And before I let you go, uh, can you tell us uh, what are you working on these days? Um, so right now, uh, I'm working on, I guess, two things, um, music always, uh, I have a side, like a little recording project called Bang Bang Jetaway. And where um, would we find those it, songs? Do you, are any of them available? Uh, yeah. Um, online you can find them, uh, at all the normal places, uh, you know, iTunes or Spotify oh, okay. or Amazon or whatever. And then, um, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to do a small run uh, of vinyl on our new album. We're going to do like just a small, like working with a label to put out just a couple hundred, um, you know, 12 inches. And then <laughs> also now I'm working. Yeah. And then um, I'm working on a, a screenplay. I, I met a guy in New York, uh, a director named Zach Heiserling, who made a, he made a, a, a documentary a few years ago called Cutie and the Boxer that did quite well. Um, he was, he won like best director at Sundance and, mm. and he, the, the, the film was nominated for an Oscar for, for best documentary. And he and I, he and I became pals and he, we were talking about the Absolved and he was very interested in making a film about, uh, basically a, a Midwestern displaced trucker when, when truckers get sort of, which is part of the Absolved. Yeah. That's um, coming soon. Yeah, a truck driver who ends up losing his job to self-driving trucks, and uh, and then sort of the aftermath of that. So, uh, we, I just finished uh, the screenplay for that, and um, now I guess we uh, sort of uh, we'll shop it around, I guess, and see if we can get a movie made. So we'll see. And what genre music would you, or just? We don't have to narrow it down too much, but just give us an idea of the band yeah, and tell yeah, us the band name again. The, the the band name is called Bang Bang Jetaway, and it's I'd call it like indie pop. Like um, for the new record, we've sort of my friend. It's just myself and a, a friend named Mike Camus, and uh, we sort of gravitated away from. We both come from like definitely like rock and roll backgrounds, mm-hmm. but he's he he plays uh, violin. And, and, and cello uh, pretty well. So we've used, we've basically gotten rid of the electric guitars and sort of used uh, most of the stuff that we're doing now is piano based. And then a lot of the, uh, there's a lot of string arrangements. Um, and, you know, these are, we're actually playing them. They're not, uh, well, mainly Camus playing them. I'm mainly playing guitar and piano and singing. Uh, but 
uh, he and he plays he plays everything better than me. But a lot of his uh, uh, playing on the on these records right now is are, are the string arrangements. Mm -hmm. And um, so yeah, it's it's, uh, it's it's really fun. It's definitely different than the than the, than the fiction writing. So I, 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 like, I like having both. <laughs> okay, well, thanks so much for chatting with me today, Matthew. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to uh, speak with me. Thanks for listening to us today on the New Books Network Fantasy and Adventure Channel. I've been talking to Matthew Binder about his latest novel, The Absolved. To find out more about Matt, visit matthewbinder.net. And tune in next month when we talk to Madeline Miller, the author of Circe. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the historical fantasy Falcon series, which begins with A Falcon Flies Alone. You can follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more. At Gabrielle Author, my name is spelled G A B R I E. L-L-E. Till next time.